Are you ready to be connected? You're listening to the Insured Connection Podcast by Pica Group, a pro-assurance company, where we provide expert advice for your practice when you need it most. We connect you with industry leaders to discuss timely topics so you can listen, learn, and get back to caring for your patients. Now, let's connect. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us again here on the Insured Connection, uh, where we bring you you know, um, professionals and leaders in the community with respect to various topics as they apply to all of our all of our lines. So everything from you know, our dental care to our lawyers, our podiatrists, as well as our um, chiropractors. So here today we have Dr. Michael Brody, and you've heard him speak on a number of topics as he is uh, has a plethora of expertise. But specifically, we will be focusing on a cyber a cybersecurity as it relates to you know emails and phishing. All the way to telehealth, and finally to um, what does it mean for uh, password password security as it relates to you know our EHR. So, Dr. Brody, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, we just wanted to kind of pick your brain. We know that um you've you've got a lot of experience, just a wealth, and it's it's a lot to kind of pack into you know the short amount of time. But we wanted to get somewhat of an overview, you know, um, kind of the up to dates and what's going on, and some tips, quips, and pearls from you. You know, let me let me hit on first. What what are your thoughts on with with regard to emails and phishing? Because this is something that we deal with on a regular basis, whether in a small or a large practice or even in the hospital. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, emails can. Cont- continue to be one of the weakest points in medical offices and in businesses across the country in terms of enabling hackers to access data inappropriately. Early on, emails were very, very simple, straightforward, and almost had purpose typos in them. So that way, they knew that people who were clicking on the links in the email were people who were not necessarily the most literate and therefore the most vulnerable to fall prey to the email hacks. And those of us who were more educated would easily recognize those as this is not real and click on them to delete them. Then they got a little bit more sophisticated where the hackers would break into somebody's email account, get their contacts, and then send emails to the contact list to try and get people to do things inappropriately. And I'm sure everybody has seen emails, help, I'm stuck in an airport, I can't find my wallet, can you send me an Amazon gift card or something? Or I'm traveling, I need to get a birthday present for my niece, would you mind buying a Amazon gift card for and sending it to them, I'll be happy to pay you back as soon as I get back in town. And we've all seen emails of that nature. And it means that the email account of your friend or colleague has been compromised and a hacker has gotten into it. Now they are getting much more sophisticated and they are breaking into the email accounts of people inside business. So therefore, for example, they might, if they were able to access the email account of somebody who worked at PICA, then the email would be coming from picagroup.com. And then they would target people inside of PICA with a very well-tailored email. So if they were able to break into Dr. Taubman's account, they might have his accounts in an email to everyone in PICA saying, okay, we've had this issue. Please click, please log on over here and change your password. Mm-hmm. And the email would lead them to a site that looks appropriate. They put in their username and password and the hackers would then have the usernames and passwords of everyone in the PICA who fell for that particular thing. This is known as spear phishing. 
They're going in and they're targeting using a high profile email address to target other high profile email addresses to get access to systems. Once they're able to get access to the systems, then they're able to break in and put virus on there or steal data. So email hacks are becoming much more sophisticated. Obviously we have the ones where you get the message, congratulations, you have won a prize, please click here to claim it. And you click there to claim the prize and your prize is a virus. In fact, a number of years ago, I got an email similar to that and I looked at it and was about to delete it. And I realized that it was a contest that I had actually entered and I scanned the email very carefully and realized it was legitimate. I actually had won the prize, which was, uh, I forget, an iPod or something, which I claimed and gave to my daughter. But I almost deleted that email thinking that it was a scam. So sometimes they actually, you may have actually won something. But when you get an email that you're not sure is legitimate or not, there are a couple of things you can do to see if it's a legitimate email. One is to use your mouse and hover over any link in the email. And when you hover over that link, it will give you the web address it wants to bring you to. So for example, if you get an email from Pika Group, or that appears to be from Pika Group, and it says, click here, and you point your mouse on it, and the mouse has something.cn, which means it's from China, you can be sure that that email did not come from Pika Group. So you can always look at the links in the email and mm -hmm. see if the emails go back to pikagroup.com, the website, then you're pretty safe clicking on that because it means it did come from Pika. In addition, when you look at the from address, the from address that's there may not be from Pika Group or the reply to address that's there may not be from Pika Group. If you want to get even more sophisticated about it, you can go to your email program and change the view and view the headers. And the headers will give you a lot of very specific detail about the servers that this came through. Uh, if you're not familiar with headers, that information may be confusing, but for somebody in your organization, if they're technically savvy, you can have them look at the email and check the headers. Other things you wanna do with email is you wanna make sure that any emails that you come get are scanned in advance for any viruses and any attachments are scanned in advance for any viruses. So you wanna make sure that you have an antivirus program in place that's set up to scan your emails and make sure that it minimizes the chance of viruses coming through. I use the term minimize because viruses can always get through because a virus may exist that this email pro that the antivirus program is not aware of yet. So in addition to that, you still have to follow your own due diligence. If you get an attachment in an email from a friend and you're not expecting that, before you click to open the attachment, pick up the friend and say, hey, did you send this to me? If they verify they did, then you can open it. If they have no idea what it is, it was probably somebody masquerading as your friend trying to get you to open up the email. But there are more cases of ransomware and breaches of patient data happening because people are not following good policies and procedures with email than any other method of HIPAA breaches at this point in time. Want to receive a monthly newsletter with topics from the Insured Connection? Head over to pikagroup.com forward slash insured connection and join our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Very helpful. Um, gosh, I wish I, <laughs> I'm sure everybody listening to this thinks that, oh, I wish I would have talked to you or heard you before, you know, because we've all done that for sure. You know, so I appreciate those tips and pearls. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, obviously we've been living in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and just the joys of that. Um, and a lot of practices have adapted by, you know, shifting over to telehealth, 
you know, so what are the risks associated? Because obviously several companies will approach us and they do those services. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? And how do we protect ourselves? Well, telehealth, especially in light of the pandemic, is an interesting situation. Early on in the pandemic, there were a number of waivers that were placed that allowed us to use any technology that would allow private two-way communication with the patient. So we could set up our own Zoom account and do Zoom meetings with our patients and bill for telehealth services. Zoom, where it's a great platform, the basic one does not have any security built into it. But it was okay, the government gave us a waiver to use non-secure telehealth methods. But now that the telehealth is much more mature, you wanna utilize a telehealth vendor that has built-in security. You wanna make sure that there is uh, SSL. So if you're connecting to a website, it says HTTPS, not HTTP. That S at the end means that it is a secure connection. In addition, you may have noticed that in the couple, last couple of years, a lot of your browsers have been updated and you've gotten messages. This version of the browser is no longer being supported. So for example, probably everyone saw messages that Internet Explorer is no longer being supported because the security in those older browsers is insufficient and now there's security inside the browsers known as TLS, which is much stronger. And many of the websites you go to may not allow one of these non-secure browsers to be utilized because they are not secure. You wanna make sure that whenever you're using telehealth, you are keeping your browser up to date. The browsers also are constantly being updated by the manufacturers of the browsers. For example, if you're using Chrome, you may see a message in the top right of your corner next to your name that, that says update. When you see that update button, please update your browser because they're constantly putting out updates to these browsers. If you're using Microsoft Edge, if you have automatic updates set up for your Microsoft computer, it will automatically update Microsoft Edge because they're constantly coming out with security fixes. Because if using telehealth and your browser is not secure, somebody could break into your browser and get information they should not. So it's important that you have constant updates on your operating system you have it turned on, on your browsers automatically, and any programs you're using to connect with patients to make sure you have the most up-to-date version of that software. So that way when communicating via telehealth, you're doing it in a secure manner. In addition, with any telehealth company, there are two ways that you're gonna communicate with the patient. One is a straight end-to-end -end communication where all the data passes through and nothing is being retained by the telehealth company. They don't store copies of the uh, conversations there and nothing stays on their servers. Everything just passes right through. If it's a pass-through service and they can show you it's a pass-through service, then you do not need a business associate agreement with the telehealth service because they are not storing, maintaining, or processing any of your information. But if the telehealth company stores any information, including who you're talking to, you wanna make sure that you have a business associate agreement in place because it means that that telehealth company is storing patient data and that patient data is your patient data and you are responsible for the security of it. And if you don't have a business associate agreement in place, then that telehealth company is not bound by contract to keep it secure. It's important to remember when we talk about HIPAA, HIPAA applies to medical doctors. It does not apply to a business associate such as a telehealth company unless you get that telehealth company to sign the business associate agreement. 
So it's important that you get that signed agreement in order to protect yourself, because if you don't and something happens there, they don't necessarily have to tell you. They don't have to take any action to remediate the problem and you're left holding the bag. Wow, that's eye-opening. That's a really good point. I remember having a conversation with a colleague recently saying that all of their data was stored you know, um, through a company, you know, they basically housed all of it, um, but there was no business agreement. Um, and you bring up a really good point with respect to HIPAA and who it governs. Um, really, really helpful. Uh, so we've covered a couple of different topics here. I do want to touch on, because you did mention to me once before that talking about password security. I know when I log on at the hospital, there's at least two points of verification, you know, for for, for accessing the data at the hospital, um, whether it's EHR companies or whatnot, you know, what are your thoughts on that and how safe should it be when it comes to password security? Well, passwords are really not very secure anymore. Passwords can be stolen. You can go onto the dark web and find databases of passwords that people have used at various websites. You may have, re may have received an email from someone saying, hey, I have your account and this is your password and it has your password or may have a password that you used years ago, but they bought an old account. Now, most of us, when we're required to change our passwords and many systems that we use require us to change our passwords on a somewhat regular basis, we'll make a simple change. For example, let's just say you're a Disney fan and therefore your password is Tinkerbell. When you're required to change it, you may make the next one Tinkerbell one or Tinkerbell two or Tinkerbell three. And that's what people tend to do because it's hard to remember all of these passwords. And as a result, the hackers know, okay, if Tinkerbell 1 didn't work, I'll try Tinkerbell 2 or Tinkerbell 10. And eventually they're able to break passwords. So passwords simply are not secure. And with the advent of quantum computers, the ability to do what's known as a brute force attack to figure out people's passwords has become much easier. Now, there's another method of security that's known as multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is when you log on to a website, it then sends you a code via text message to your phone, and you have to then enter that code into the website, at which point you've entered your username, your password, and then the code you received via text, and then you have access to the website. And you'll find if you look at it carefully, each of those codes, which may be six, seven, eight, nine digits, is good for approximately 60 to 90 seconds, at which point the code expires. This provides a much greater level of protection for the data. In fact, the federal government has come out and said that they expect that when we access patient data over the web or over a computer system, that we should be using multi-factor authentication. So we want to have that in place. We want to ask our vendors, do you have multi-factor authentication available? I want to use it. I want to require that all of the individuals who are working at my practice use it. I know that even when I want to order something on Amazon, I log on to Amazon. I put in my username and password, and then I have an application on my phone called Authy, which changes a six-digit code every 60 seconds. And I have to go open up that application on my phone and type in that six-digit code, or I can't even place an order on Amazon. This is becoming the standard for security, and it's something that we should insist on from all of our vendors because passwords alone simply are not secure enough anymore. That's true. And um, boy, anyone just listening to this, you know, for, for any of our lines, 
Um, you know, we have a tendency to save passwords even. I'm sure you're cringing even hearing that, you know, but the, <laughs> I can imagine, you know, and just like you said, I mean, you know, whether it's Tinkerbell one or two, we seem to do what's easier and not necessarily thinking of, you know, kind of the responsibility that falls on us if we're not being diligent about guarding the information that, that we have. Um, very, very helpful. Helpful. Dr. Brody, I want, I did want to ask you, um, you know, you speak a lot, you know, on HIPAA, cybersecurity or whatnot, you know, what, what is kind of your passion and what's something that you feel that maybe is being overlooked, you know, you specifically, what do you, what do you enjoy the most? As far as my passion, I really want to get the word out to providers of the risks that are out there and what they can do to minimize those risks, because the steps necessary to minimize the risk of having a HIPAA breach are things we can do on our own. We can do them typically at a very, very low price. And all it takes is a little bit of time and effort. For example, one of my pet peeves are when people set up their networks. You go to the store or you go online and you buy a new router or you get it from your cable provider and you plug it in and it works and that you're on the internet and there's no problem whatsoever. But each of these devices, routers can be managed and they all have a username and password and they all come with a default username and password. And I can't tell you how many people do not log into their device and change the default username and password. And if, some, if you have a wireless router in your house and you have not set up security and changed your default username and password, someone can park outside your house, connect to your network, and see that you have, for example, a Netgear 5000 router. And they go to the Netgear 5000 router, and they get to the login page. And all they have to do is go online and ask, what is the default username and password for the Netgear 5000? They get that, they punch it in, and suddenly they have complete control of your network. So one of my pet peeves is when you enter, install new technology, change the default username and password. A lot of us are installing internet of things devices. This might be ring doorbells. These might be methods that we utilize to turn on and off lights in the house or check our alarm system. It's very important that when you install these things, these are all network enabled devices and we can log into. And if we have not changed the default username and password, we may be giving somebody full access to get into our home network. Because when we get into one of these nodes or points in the network, once you're in and you've gotten into that, you can travel from the ring doorbell to the computer and get all the information on the computer. And hackers have done this a number of times. A number of years ago, there was a very, shall we say, amusing story of a casino in Las Vegas that was robbed via, via cyber theft because the hackers broke into an internet connected fish tank that was where the internet was being utilized to monitor the temperature, to keep the temperature right. So the crooks broke into the casino through the fish tank and were able to steal money and get access to the casino data that way. So it happens all the time. And sometimes you read about it, sometimes you don't, but these are things that are real and things we have to protect ourselves against and protecting ourselves is simply a matter of due diligence. It's not an expensive process. Just take the time and effort to do so. So one of my pet peeves is that 
there are things we can do that don't cost us any money that can improve our security and we're not taking the steps to protect ourselves properly. Mm. And that's what I hear you saying, going the extra mile, you know, to making sure that we're protecting ourselves. Um, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brody, so much. I mean, we really, it's always an honor for us to be able to have you on, you know, for any of um, any of the shows or, or even the conferences that we have you at. So thank you so much for imparting your expertise to us. Um, everyone, thank you so much for listening in on the Insured Connection. If, you know, if you can follow with us and you can follow any of our social media uh, lines, you'll see that, you know, every Wednesday you can check back and we're releasing one of our podcasts for something just like this, you know, our time with, um, with one of our leaders in the field. So Dr. Brody, thank you so much for joining with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode, but let's continue connecting. If you're enjoying the Insured Connection, don't forget to leave a review on your streaming platform and subscribe now so you can connect with us each time we post a new episode. To stay connected with us throughout the week and to tell us topics we should discuss on future episodes, go to pikagroup.com forward slash insured connection.